Welcome to the Seek Forgiveness Podcast. Seek forgiveness for the launch Mental Health Ki Hai, a transformative translation guide that looks to explore and explain common mental health issues in a way that Sikh and Punjabi speaking communities can understand. If you'd like to find out more, please visit sikhforgiveness.com. If you're in the UK, you can purchase directly from the website. If you're looking to purchase internationally, please check out Amazon. Welcome to the Seat Forgiveness podcast. Um, today we are joined with Arti Kumari, who is a mental health and suicide prevention um, professional and has been working in the industry for about 10 years now. Thank you for joining us today. Tell us a bit more about your experiences within the mental health and suicide prevention. Thanks, Sandy, for having me. Um, it's really great to be here and to talk to you, but also also the other listeners as well to the SF platform. So this is a really important topic I think that we cover and I know that you cover a lot of these different elements across your platforms anyway but I think a lot of people don't realize that there is a link between mental health and suicide prevention and how suicide doesn't really materialize from nothing and I think that's why it's really important to raise awareness of how they're linked but you also don't have to have a mental health issue in order to to have suicidality or think about suicide so it's important I think to to raise awareness of some of these sorts of things so I started in mental health myself uh, you know over 10 years ago I did a psychology degree and I was always really interested in helping people ultimately and helping people get support I'm somebody that you know struggled myself when I was younger and got the help and support that I needed so I really felt like you know it really helped me and I wanted to be able to give that back to others so I did a lot of work in uh, domestic abuse prevention, especially around our young people, stuff around self-harm prevention and suicide prevention. So it's kind of progressed as I've gone along throughout the different areas and, meet, and you know, working in different places. So, you know, I've worked in like refuges and I've worked out in the community and I've worked in more professional settings. So a number of different areas. And I would say that there's definitely a link. I know that there was a lot of people that I supported who were coming out of abusive situations, who had had thoughts of suicide. I also know that there was people who had self-harmed, who had had thoughts of suicide. But there were also people within that that had not thought about that as well. And I think it's important to highlight that sometimes it's just out of the individual circumstance. And now this natural progression into suicide prevention, I find quite interesting because it does bring a lot of what I've learned in the past and a lot of the things that I've come across in the different risk factors to this place. Because when I talk to people who are thinking about suicide currently, there are a number of factors as to what's led to that. And some of that can be uh, circumstantial. So around finances, around breakdown of relationships, 
uh, we've just been through, you know, a, a pretty significant, huge life event for the majority of us to experience on a global scale. But I think what's important for us to highlight is how everybody has gone through this event, this pandemic, but we've all experienced it differently and we've all experienced it individually. And we can even just reflect on, say, some of our social groups. So we think about maybe some of our friends and our family members. Some have had to like self-isolate for the majority of the time. Some of them have actually been able to go out and about. We've all got different views on, you know, vaccinations and all this sort of stuff. So everybody's had very different experiences and some people have struggled more than others within this time. So we know that Sadly, and this won't be a surprise, I can imagine to a lot of people, those thinking about suicide have increased. So the, the numbers in calls to helplines and the number in calls of people actually seeking support has increased. Although on the other side, we can see that as a bit of a positive because people are seeking help and support when they are struggling. So that's quite a positive thing. But there hasn't been an increase in those who have gone on to take their own life. So where there may have been some concerns previously with this pandemic, and the stay-at-home order and everything that we've had, that we would, that there would have been increase in suicides, there actually hasn't been. But that's not to say that we haven't seen an increase in people experiencing mental health issues and coming forward about the mental health issues and then also going on to experience suicide. You've covered quite a lot of interesting facts around suicide prevention and how it kind of progressed within your career. One of the things I picked up on is that you actually used the terminology, was it taken by suicide rather than committed suicide? Why is the language and the terminology that we use so important? Really great question. And thank you. Thank you for picking that up. I think it's important when you work in you know, a mental health field or you work in suicide prevention that we carry ourselves in a way that we present how we should talk about suicide. And I think a lot of people don't necessarily understand how we can talk about mental health issues in a way that's appropriate and sensitive, because there is a way to talk about things that can enable somebody to have a conversation. So for example, like you just highlighted there, the term committed is, is a fairly common term that we hear in our communities. We even see in the news, we see, you know, we see news reporters that say it. So it's fairly common that we hear some people say that they've committed suicide. And actually one of the reasons why we try to steer away from that sort of language or at least steer away from that committed suicide is because it's not a crime. And committed suicide, that terminology existed when suicide was a crime. And it's interesting that maybe maybe some of the people listening to this or watching this might actually not realise, but suicide was actually a crime before 1961 in this country. And what happened was, is if you had attempted to take your life but had not died by suicide, you would be either imprisoned, you know, for the rest of your life in an actual prison, or uh, before 1961, we had what was then known as asylums. So where those who were deemed as mentally ill would go, so they or they'd be locked up there for the rest of their life because they'd be deemed as mentally ill. They'd be stripped of their possessions, and you can imagine the huge amounts of dishonour that would happen to the family name and the family that was left behind, knowing that they had somebody either in prison for something like that or in, in what was in a mental asylum. If you did go on to take your own life and die by suicide, you weren't. The, one of the biggest consequences, additional, would be that you weren't allowed to be buried in consecrated consecrated ground, which is often what we know as holy ground. So you would be buried outside of the church. And that was a huge thing. It had huge implications before 1961. You know, the church has really led and faith has really led a lot of the laws. So it was a really, really big stigma. The stigma was absolutely huge before 1961. And when we say the word committed in our everyday other language, we often refer it to a crime. So we'll say committed a felony, committed a robbery, committed arson. And that is because it refers to a crime. So one of the main reasons why we want to stay away from the word committed is because after six, after 1961, it was decriminalized and it is no longer that crime. But there are ways to talk about it that is safe and there are ways to talk about it that's appropriate. And I think one of the, the big things that we want to get across in this conversation is just about 
how we're not asking people or it doesn't have to be as big as people make it out into their head when people think that somebody might be thinking about suicide I think often there's a bit of a panic and people can think oh my god this is a really huge issue and you know I don't even know how to even begin this conversation and I have this huge sense of responsibility on me if, if this person is thinking this way and I think it's important to highlight that that's not what we're asking people to do here and it's not what we need people to do you know in, in order for somebody to have a a conversation with somebody you need to be equipped with the skills and have the training and we'd always say go and have the training i'm a suicide prevention trainer and i'm somebody that you know has various different professionals as well as individuals who've been bereaved by suicide come to training sessions to learn a little bit more about how to talk about this but if somebody's listening to this right now or watching this and they're actually thinking i want i'm worried about somebody in my life it's all about just starting a conversation how are you i'm worried about you can you tell me a little bit more what's going on you don't seem like your usual self and that's all we want people to do is to start a conversation. And we're not saying you have to have all the answers. Of course you don't. It might be helpful to have some helpline numbers already with you or some areas where you can suggest maybe we can call together or we can go to the GP. But remember, you don't have to fix anything. And the language that we want to steer away from is things around committed, but also additional things such as what's wrong with you, why you act in the way that you are. Um, if somebody does talk about going on to take their own life or attempting to take their own life, we sometimes get language around that such as failed. So somebody might say, well, that's a failed suicide attempt or unsuccessful, which actually is, I feel quite uncomfortable even, even saying that, that terminology because it makes me cringe when I hear somebody say unsuccessful or failed because if, if, you know, if somebody was struggling and vulnerable and they came to me and spoke to me and they told me that they'd attempted to take their life. And I said, so you're telling me you were unsuccessful in your attempt to take your own life. Just the, just the language around that is, will ultimately tell someone, well, you can't even do that right. You're, you're a failure. You were unsuccessful even in doing that. And it's just not, it's, just, it's very value-based judgments in our language. Whereas if I was to say, if somebody was to tell me that they had tried to take their own life because they were in a lot of pain and that, you know, they were sitting in front of me today and they wanted to get some help and support, you know, what we would be encouraging people to say is, I'm really sorry to hear that you've been in so much pain that you felt that ending your own life was the only thing that you could do. I'm really pleased that you're sitting here in front of me and I'm really pleased that you're at a point where you want to get help and support. And I want you to know that I take this really seriously and we're going to get help and support together. And it's really about validating. And I think that's an important thing about language, whether it's somebody who's got a mental health issue or somebody who is talking about suicide, it's about validating their experiences. And that can be really hard to do. And I want to acknowledge that when we know someone really close. Now, in this world and in this field, I have had family members and friends who've shared, you know, at, from time to time when they have really struggled. And it's not easy. It's not easy at all to have a conversation with someone that you love and, and you know, you respect or you really value to hear them talk about that they're in so much pain that they've thought about ending their life. And it also can be really hard sometimes if we don't always get along with that individual. And it's interesting, some of the things that we do talk about in our training role is about well, what if you had to do an intervention or talk to somebody who you didn't actually like? or we didn't have a lot of compassion for. And that can happen in our world. That can happen across all our professional boundaries or even personally. And we would say that you're probably not the best person to have that conversation with them if you can't separate that, those judgments that you have away from that individual. So we really got to think about, who, are we the right person to have that conversation with that individual? What, who would we go to for support if that individual said that they would like some support further on and we can definitely share some helplines toward the end if people are interested but also think about how we're we going to approach this and talk about this and if i need support. like it's so important to realize that if you're the person supporting another that you also seek the support that you need in order to 
um, take on board what someone struggling is saying to you because you and I are both trainers. We train within mental health, we train within suicide prevention. And one of the key things I think we both have to say is that, you know, we have to be blunt sometimes. We have to be open to the fact that we don't know what someone is going to say and we have to be prepared for that to some extent. But it's really difficult when it's a family member or a friend because you're nurtured as you're growing up anyway is to protect or to fix. And I think this is where sometimes it can get miscommunicated between trying to help someone in a close relationship or a close vicinity around your circles. Um, and the judgment does creep in. Sometimes you can say things you don't intend to say. Um, and someone who is struggling will only hear the negatives rather than I'm here to support you. And it's so that everything that you've touched upon is about validating how that person is feeling and ensuring that they are supported because they've reached a stage where they feel as though nothing else matters now and they can't find yeah. a way forward and I think how one of the things that you said was you know pre-1961 it was very faith-based do you think in some communities still think that way? I definitely do think that some communities think that way I think sadly those a lot of the connotations or the way that we thought about suicide hasn't really changed in a lot of ways. And I think there's a, there's a lot of faith-based language around suicide or people that go on to take their own life and think about suicide that can be very problematic and can often place judgments on those individuals or talk about the consequences of having those types of thoughts or engaging in those types of behaviours on maybe their, their spiritual journey and, and where they want to go. And, and every community and different faith-based organisation will say it slightly differently, but they often mean a lot of the same things. And, you know, when I've supported family members, um, not so much my family members, but family members who've lost someone to suicide through the work that I've done, or even friends who've lost someone to suicide through the work that I've done, they, sometimes they highlight where they might have had a service in memory for that particular individual who they lost, that some of the language by the faith leader was quite problematic in some of those arenas. And, you know, you've got family members and friends there who are grieving. You know, we would say that suicide isn't just a typical type of bereavement is we class it as a traumatic bereavement and so when we try to understand what somebody goes through in a general in a general bereavement setting compared to a traumatic bereavement setting as suicide it needs to be treated differently and we also need to look at it differently so for so when somebody goes to a service who's been traumatically bereaved in that way and they might hear their faith leader talk about sin or they talk about how or all these other types of terminology then you know that can also aid sadly on that journey and that of grief of where that particular individual is because when somebody goes on to take their own life there's so many questions that are left so many questions for those individuals who are the family members or friends or maybe colleagues work people or even witnesses and I think the other thing we need to think about is it's not just friends and families who are bereaved necessarily or affected we know that sometimes suicides can happen in public places and it might be seen by general members of the public or there might be witnesses or other individuals and they would have been affected by that as well. So if they turn up or they go to these places, you know, they have an impact on that. And some of the work that I'm trying to do is to highlight some of that. You know, when I've done work in faith-based organisations previously, you know, one of the biggest things that I say to their faith leaders is if a member of your congregation is thinking about suicide and the one place they want to bring it is to their faith leader, not just that they're struggling 
what are you doing as a faith leader to let your congregation know that it's okay that they can come speak to you? How are you sharing that message? Because I think sometimes there's an assumption often made that it's okay, we can talk about anything. Often we, we need to say who's thinking about suicidal thoughts, he's worried about that person, needs to be comfortable with the idea of that. You know, they have to be like, well, if they haven't said suicide, well, I'm going to take my own light. The way that it's okay that they can talk to you. So some of the work that I've done with faith leaders and faith communities is to highlight and ask these faith leaders if a member of your congregation is thinking about suicide and is struggling and is in pain, what are you doing as a faith leader to let them, to let them know that they can come and speak to you about not going to be judged and it's okay that they can. And I think often there's assumption made that they can come and talk about anything because a lot of these faiths, and they'll talk about a lot of different issues around like domestic abuse and sexual abuse, things like that. So, you know, they, they will often cover that, but they might not mention suicide. And one of the things that we talk about in our training, especially around language, is if you are the individual who is worried about someone and you're starting a conversation about suicide, you often have to be the person to say the word or use the terminology. And that can make people feel really uncomfortable. People can often sit back and think, if, if they don't actively say the word suicide or I'm going to take my life, I'm not going to say it. But my point is always, well, they might have said everything but that. And the reason why they haven't said that is because they don't know that they can talk to you about that. And while it can be incredibly uncomfortable, what you're saying to someone by asking them the question, you've told me all of this that's happened right now and you've told me about all the pain that you're in. And I wonder, because of the conversation we're having right now, if you've ever thought about suicide as a way to think about ending your pain. For example, that might be one way that we start, we lead into it. Oh, what I'm saying to that individual is I'm okay to talk about this subject and you're not going to be judged by me and it's okay that we talk about that. And that's really, really important. There's often a lot of reassurances that an individual needs to talk about that and, and share that message and say that. And so that's my message to, you know, faith leaders or those in the congregation saying, how obvious is it that somebody can come and talk to you about it? Because I, I want to highlight that I think faith can be an incredible protective factor for a lot of individuals who are struggling in mental health issues, in suicidality, in other things that are going on in life. And I'm, I, I'm somebody who will definitely, you know, attest that I think for myself, I'm a very spiritual person. And for me, faith has got me through quite a few different difficult parts in my life. So we don't want to negate that. And we don't want to not acknowledge that faith can be a huge protective factor, but it's about those messages within those faith organizations that's important. Now, when you were asking me these questions, Sandy, you mentioned before about uh, family members and friends and maybe not necessarily knowing what to do or say or maybe getting things wrong and I just want to come back to that point if that's okay because I think that's important to highlight I think we can often get a little bit in our heads about what if I say the wrong thing and I think you're absolutely right about how emotional we can get in that moment and I think it's absolutely okay to be emotional with somebody that you love telling you you know what I'm really struggling and I'm in pain and I don't know what to do and I just feel really lost and I think, I think sometimes it's okay to express that because they know how much you care about them. And I think if we do ever say anything, and we, we probably will, like I don't always get it right and I've been in suicide prevention for a while, but that doesn't mean that I don't acknowledge that. And I think it's important within that, in that space to acknowledge it and say, I'm really sorry that I said that. Because often some of the things that can be problematic is maybe saying, have you thought about your children? Have you thought about your family? Have you thought about your partner? And we can often bring that in and, and, and we bring that in because we think, well, that's going to be their protective factor. But actually, what we need to acknowledge is that they've probably already thought about that and thought, actually, that individual, that family member, that friend, those children, they're better off without me. And actually, it's not particularly helpful because it adds in the guilt factor and it makes them feel worse. So it's about, it's about working with them for them to find their reason to live. And a lot of that, 
I would encourage people if they are particularly interested in this or really worried to either, you know, speak to someone on a helpline to get some advice. And I think people don't always know that, but whereas in we share helplines to signposts for individuals to get support, helplines can also be used for individuals to call about someone and say, I'm worried about this particular friend in my life or this colleague or this family member and I don't really know how to start this conversation and I need a bit of advice and most helplines will absolutely help you with that and they will give you some pointers and some tips and you can even practice you can even practice on that helpline having that conversation with that individual or if you can get to a training where you can where you can talk about some of that but if you do get emotional it's okay and you know it's important to acknowledge that I'm emotional because I love you and it's really hard to hear that you're thinking like this but I want you to know that I'm here to help and I'm here to listen. And you covered such an important passage and what most people would say, especially those who are supporting loved ones, is there's there's always the think about somebody else, your kids, your family, your the people around you, all these people love you. Why would you want to take your own life? What has driven you to this? There's this direct communication to them as in they're doing something wrong and they're not thinking about anything and I think one of the things is uh, you're being selfish getting a bit noisy um I think this is one of the key things that a lot of people feel who are who are potentially suicidal or feeling in pain or going through mental health struggles is one no one's going to understand so they have no other option two it's attention seeking and that's how people see it is they oh as you mentioned earlier, you failed, um, you were unsuccessful. And I find those type of words to be linked to more exams and tests and, oh, don't worry if you haven't um, been successful this time, but maybe next time. And I think these are the things that it links to rather than taking a step back and saying, okay, let's just talk. And I think one of the important things is, is that you don't have to know, as you said, you don't have to know all the answers. No one knows all the answers. Everybody's situation is different and everybody's capacity to manage their stress levels or the pain thresholds or whatever they're going through is unique to every single person. And you can't compare. Another thing that we do is we compare a lot compared to, oh, this person was able to do or, you know, why can't you be like other siblings or friends or people that they and for someone who is struggling, that's really hard to take in it's the guilt factor as you said it's think about all these people who love you think about everyone you're going to be leaving behind why would you want to do that it's not stripping it back to okay how can I help you you know I'm here for you and it's important to actually give them your attention and validate everything that they're going through that I'm here for you regardless there's I say there's no need but as you say you know sometimes you accidentally say things that um are not intended and that's okay as well it just means you're human you're not a professional in that circumstance to have a conversation but it's important to just reframe and rephrase your conversation around okay what can we do to help you or who would you like to talk to and sometimes I know from previous experiences with other service users, not everybody wants to talk to a family member. Not everybody wants to talk to a friend or someone that they know. And just equipping them with some helplines, as he said, or some support groups or going to the GP with them. You don't necessarily have to sit with them when they're talking to the GP, but it's just accompanying them and saying, OK, I'm outside if you need anything. 
or I can come in with you, whatever you choose to do, I'm here for you. And it's little important steps. I think like that would be so vital for someone who is trying to figure out what they're going through. Do you think it's still a taboo conversation within the South Asian community? Yeah, definitely. It's definitely something that people still struggle with to talk about. And uh, people can often look like deer courts and headlights when you kind of raise it, especially if it's kind of a little bit out of the blue. Before I go into that though, Sandy, I think I just want to just come back to a point that you made that was really important about how, about our attitudes and how we may either view the, the act of suicide itself or how we might actually view that person and how that can have an impact on how we have that conversation. And I think, you know, through the training that I do, we actually do an exercise on attitudes and we talk to individuals about, well, where would you be on an attitude scale you know, with this, for example, and we highlight how actually, as much as we try to hide our attitudes, we're not that great at hiding them, and they often do come to the forefront, especially in emotive conversations. It can often be very made, made very clear about what we think about an act we're thinking of, or you know, a route that somebody might be thinking of taking, or even the individual themselves. So it's about it's about almost checking yourself, and so, and our attitudes are often framed by our personal experiences, and. For example, when I've done training, I've had a number of individuals that have come to the training sessions who have been bereaved by suicide. And that does absolutely impact their attitudes. Of course it does. How would it not impact your attitude to what you think about suicide, especially if you've lost someone close to you to the act of suicide? It will absolutely affect that. So it's almost about in that space, just acknowledging that. And then just coming back to recognizing whether you're the right person to have that conversation, because actually sometimes when we have a conversation with someone and we're still dealing with things ourselves, we need to acknowledge that we're probably not the best person to have that conversation because it could be triggering for us on other levels. And the focus of that conversation is that individual. Like you said, what do you need? Do you want me to come with you to the GP? Would you like us to call this helpline together and we can talk through some of the services together? Do you want me to come back and check on you tomorrow? We can maybe you know see each other tomorrow as well. Again, if you need that support, it's about really working with that individual to find out what they need. So it's about same face. And you know, when we have conversations, so when family members have conversations, friends or colleagues, you know, we're not really listening to listen, we're listening to reply. So you and I could be having a conversation outside of this, and I could be like, oh, Sandy's just mentioned this really great thing, and I can't wait till she shuts up for a second, and then I can jump in with mine. And, you know, just things like that, you know, um, because you stop and take a breath, and I'm like, oh, my God, that happened to me as well, and, and all this sort of stuff. And, and, you know, I think that's fun, and that's great, and there's a time and a place for that. But it's about remembering there's also a time and a place to have a much more serious, in-depth conversation. And it's about looking at other factors. It's not just it's not just that conversation. It's where you're having that conversation. It's who you're around and where you are and the, the privacy as well. Because that individual might be in an environment where they can't really talk openly or they don't want other people to hear what's happening. And so, for example, in a work situation, you might want to find a quieter space or a quiet room if you can. I know that majority of us are working from home at the moment, so obviously that, that can be a little bit difficult. But if you can find some of that quiet space, either over Zoom or over Teams, or whether that's you know going for a walk in the talk, whatever that looks like, it's about making sure that those conditions are right as well for that conversation. So there's a number of factors here, and I don't want it to sound really complicated, but I think it's about acknowledging how important that conversation is because you want to give that person your undivided attention and you're listening to listen, remember? And you're right that we don't need to know all the answers because often all you need to do is listen. And if for the majority of people that will talk about suicide, it can often be the very first time they've ever even said the word or acknowledged it or even talked about why they're thinking the way that they're thinking. And it could be the very first time they've even been asked 
have you had thoughts of suicide? So it's going to be huge for that individual. So you don't need to fill that space, those silences. And that's another thing about silences. People can be really uncomfortable with them. But actually, what we need to remember is the silence, what's happening in that silence. Maybe that individual has heard out loud for the very first time what they're thinking because it's different to think it and it's different to say it out loud. And maybe they just need some time to process it. Don't be afraid of those silences and don't feel uncomfortable in them. And like I said, if you need a bit of help and support to have that conversation, you can absolutely call a helpline and you can have those conversations together. I actually know there's some suicide prevention helplines where, where so actually some professionals call up who haven't had a significant amount of suicide prevention training, but will do an intervention or create a safety plan with the individual in the room and that person on the helpline who's that trained individual having that conversation with them to help aid them. So there's a number of factors there. So now I went a little bit off a tangent, but I thought it was really important to, uh, to cover that bit. So to come back to the taboo, yes, absolutely. And you know, I can just, you know, even from my own experiences, and I've, I've worked in mental health for a number of years, and then I moved into suicide prevention. And when I moved into suicide prevention, I believe when you work in mental health or any type of field like that, it's not just a nine to five work job. It's something that you also, you know, believe in personally. So, you know, I was having really open conversations with family members and friends about what I do, and I wasn't really hiding it. But when I mentioned that I worked in suicide prevention, I had a number of different family members and friends share with me where they had been affected by suicide that I was not made aware of previously at all at any point until I told them that I work in this field. And, and, and not, not even just family members and friends. I remember when I first started this job, there was this co coffee shop I used to go to locally. This is a number of years ago now, pre-pandemic. But there's a coffee shop I used to go to locally. And sometimes I'd just sit there and I'd read a book or listen to a podcast, but just get a break in from the office. And, um, you know, there was a regular waitress that was there at the time. And, you know, you just get chatty and you say hi because, you know, you get to see regular faces. And I just remember just dropping it very casually in conversation about what this is maybe the third or fourth time that I'd seen her when I was a regular face that she was saying, oh, you must work locally. Like, what do you do? And I remember telling her what I did. And she in that conversation, bear in mind, it was busy. You know, it wasn't obviously the best environment to have. But she started telling me about a friend of hers that she was really worried about who had lost, who had lost his son suicide and she was incredibly worried about what he was going through right now and this was a waitress in a coffee shop that had probably met for the fourth time and not known anything personal about and yet she was able to share such a big thing for me and that's how sometimes my job role even sharing that can be like a really big icebreaker for a lot of individuals to share kind of what's happening so there's definitely a taboo and within the South Asian community it's almost like there's different layers to the taboos that we have in the South Asian community. And there's different layers to different things that we talk about. So you have different things that are laid and laid and laid. And then as you go through the layers and it gets harder and harder to talk about, you've got suicide at the top or suicide prevention at the top. And that's where people do struggle. Now I've worked with individuals from the South Asian community who have been bereaved by suicide and are now, you know, very passionate about raising awareness of the call. But sadly, that's after the effect. And, and the work that I'm trying to do and the work that we're trying to highlight is we want to prevent suicide and we want to equip our communities to be able to talk about this and be able to know that actually if you're struggling, there are places where you can go to, to for support. Um, I talked earlier about faith and, and spirituality and I really, really believe that it is such a powerful protective factor for a lot of individuals. But I think when we think about our faith leaders and our organisations, what we also need to acknowledge is the difference between seeking a medical intervention and medical advice and the difference then between receiving spiritual advice and i'm not saying and i don't want to offend anybody listening about you know that one's right over the other and i don't believe one's right over the other at, at any point 
I believe we need, we probably need both. So if you are going to your faith leader and saying, I'm struggling and, you know, you know, there's lots of things in my mind and, and they might say, okay, you know, do this fast or do this puja, or they might say, you know, pray on this day for, for this particular thing or, or do, or do these, you know, seva or do certain sevas and that might help. And, 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 you know, if you believe in that, absolutely do that. Because if it brings you that peace, absolutely do that. But that's not to say that we shouldn't also at the same time be seeking advice from our GP or medical intervention about what's happening as well. And I believe there's a space for both. And I believe that they can both be in harmony together because ultimately what you're doing is you're just doubling up on what can be the intervention to help you to get better. I think you've just hit the nail on the head there. And actually it is, you know, a lot of people do go to their spiritual leaders or to their faith to get that additional support that guidance on what they should do next or you know how do they heal or or stop thinking in a certain way or um you know are they different are they odd or are they not normal or is this is they they're seeking for validation of what they're going through and acceptance and i think a, a place of faith or faith leaders do hold a certain set of importance to someone's life especially if they're spiritual i know from previous you know, individuals who have gone to places of faith for advice and they have not received the best support that they've needed. However, they've not been deterred in following their spirituality and their faith going forward. They have sought out other support like medical advice or self-help. And it's, I think that's another thing that uh, maybe communities or individuals just don't have enough awareness of is having more than one coping mechanism to manage your your poor mental health. You may not need medication or professional help from someone in the medical industry. It might be that you need form of therapy or, you know, self, self-help um, groups or a support group or, you know, going to a community club or going to a faith-based um, prayer day or you know a weekend where they hold activities and getting involved within the community and it's a multitude of things that you need to support yourself and I think if we were to take that into an, an a day-to-day setting so if someone was going to work or school you don't just do one lesson you don't just go to school and do English or science it's English science maths because they're equipping you with skills with learning tools and I think that's the things that we should be as say individuals within the mental health industry or even just in any industry you work in is you are equipped with tools to manage your day-to-day and that's the same that you would need to do with your health whether it be physical or mental what are you equipping yourself to support your health in achieving that you are happy physically, emotionally, mentally, socially, because all of these impacts your your way of thinking. And I think, you know, suicide suicidal thoughts come from a form from a, a trauma, traumatic event in someone's life, or it could be a build up of feelings. It could be numerous things that has driven someone to feel a certain way neither does it make them different or you know abnormal or out of place out of their community it just makes them someone who needs additional support 
Yeah. Um, and, and just almost temporary and at that moment, right? And I think yeah. that's important to highlight, isn't it? I think if, I think what you mentioned there is, you know, is, is brilliant and you were, uh, I think, able to articulate it a lot better than I was about almost that toolbox, that toolbox of resources to help us get through different things. And I think as we grow up and we become adults, and let's be honest, we spend a very small amount of our time, a very short amount of our life being young people. Yes. And the rest of our life being adults, <laughs> if we live to the ripe age of like 80 or 90, whatever that is, then we definitely have, you know, a very, very small part of ourselves as young people and get and maybe able to get away with those things. But I, I think there's a lot that's put onto us during the age of when we are young people that we're supposed to know. And I think one of the biggest learning factors as becoming an adult is that this toolbox of resources that you've got or if you don't have that to begin with, or if you haven't built any of that level of resilience into your adult age, it can severely impact your adult your adult life and kind of brain. That's not to say that you can't change that around and you can't get the support that you need, but it's it's about acknowledging that actually just because you felt sadness or you felt really unhappy or felt frustrated or you've had suicidal thoughts in the past does not mean you won't have them again. And I think that's what's really, really important for us. It's not to say that you won't get to that point again where you'll be really low or you'll be really down, but... I think what's important to remember about our experiences when you've gone somewhere once and you've been able to come back from it, there's so much more familiarity down that road than there ever was. And I almost liken it to like early warning signs. So your body learns to adapt and understand what it is that led you down that path. If you, especially if you get the help and support to get out of it, what it will teach you is about what led you down that path and what were your triggers? What were your early warning signs that led you down there? And once you know that internally, you will get those early warning signs again in the future. So it's not to say that just because you overcome something, you're not going to go back to that place, but you've become stronger. It's almost like that immunity response. You know, we get given a vaccine and the tiniest bit of something that we need in our body in order to create those antibodies. So there's familiarity then in the future if something is that something that phone was to invade our body again through external sources, there would be familiarity in the body because there's a blueprint and there's a memory. It creates the memory. So we have the memory of it. And so there's already things created to help tackle it. And your early warning signs start to blink and start to go like, this is something we need, you know, we need to do something about now before it gets to a place where it was really bad again. And remember, we go to that place to begin with because it's so unfamiliar and we don't know how to navigate it, but we do in the future. And it's okay to have those days where you're feeling a bit low, you're feeling a bit low on energy, you need a bit more time for yourself. And it's okay if you go back to those places again, but it's what you do when you're in those places that counts. It's who you speak to. It's about the lessons that you've learned. It's about maybe getting the help and support. And it's about trying to stop yourself from getting, from making it, from getting to a place where it was as bad as it was. And I think that's important because I think people think if you've gone there, you're never going to go there again. And that could be across any type of mental health issue, let alone, you know, somebody thinking about suicide. But you don't know what life holds. You know, uh, one of the things that I'll say to people when it comes to a training, when we're sitting in, in that in that space is, you know, could you, you know, for, for many of you, you may have had suicidal thoughts in the past. And some of you sitting here may not have had experienced that at all. But none of you in this space can sit here and say that you'll never get that again because you really don't know what life is going to throw you. So those toolbox of resources are important. And you write about making sure that they come from various different places. So they can be from faith. They can be from what we've learned in our education system. They can be maybe what we learned through our counseling and therapy. They can be through what we learned from, you know, the helplines and things like that. And however long you need to get that support, get it. We need to normalize getting support 
for things that we need or normalize those conversations where somebody goes to a therapist or counselor for however long they feel they need to go. Because I also think, I ultimately think you're, ulti- you're working on becoming the best version of yourself. And sometimes that means I'm picking a lot of layers. Sometimes it means going to a lot of places of pain. And I think it's important to acknowledge that, but that growth through that pain is absolutely phenomenal and so worth it on the other side. So it's important to have that support structure in place if somebody is seeking that support. It's also important that places where you go to, as in places of faith, school, universities, I think mental health has evolved slowly, but to a stage where industries are taking them on board. You know, universities are talking about and they have lots of resources for students and staff as well, schools, um, workplaces are as well. And even some faith places are having the conversations, but I think it's the continuation of being able to make mental health and a suicide prevention a normal conversation in there is nothing to fear around it. And I think that's one of the biggest things and stigmas that's attached to both topics is there's just a fear of one having to talk about it. Is even if you, you don't struggle with with suicidal thoughts or poor mental health, to begin the conversation, you're automatically kind of viewed as why are you talking about that? What's what's wrong with you? The the judgment is already there. And it's stripping away that that fear, that that stigma of the more we learn about it, the more we educate ourselves, the better we will be for those around us. And as you said, because of where we work or or who we might be in communication with, anybody can ask you that question. Like the waitress did, she knew and felt comfortable enough and in a safe environment with you to have ask you those questions. And it usually does take the few meetings or 15 to 20 minutes of being in the same company with someone that you would openly want to share what you're going through if you feel comfortable and I think this is where it's important for places to take that on board. Spirituality is important for a lot of people whether it be a religious or non-religious it's how are we going to tackle those conversations in the right way and do we know enough in order to tackle those conversations and I think one of the things that has maybe pushed people away in wanting to talk about mental health and suicide is the judgment of why do you want to talk about that don't worry if you pray enough it will go away or you know you shouldn't think like that because you know it's against your religion or against your faith and that's another thing that people are kind of felt as though they're guilted into feeling oh I'm I'm betraying my faith or my religious beliefs and that's the thing I think especially as a as, as a person who is quite spiritual and wants to support the community it's we want to move away from that that stigma of what you're going through is absolutely valid but there's a way we can help you manage and I think we need to not stop but change the narrative of um putting that guilt onto someone as though they're doing something wrong um, but it's important for faiths and faith leaders, as you said, to begin those conversations and not to turn away from them. And I, I, it's going to be individuals like yourself and those who are willing to challenge the, the narratives and conversations in places like that to say, we need to have this conversation because we are losing far too many to poor mental health because you haven't provided a safe space. And most places of faith, especially are built on being places 
um, safe spaces, a place for where you would look for comfort, for tranquility, for good blessings, or if someone is passing on, you know, a part of the, someone's faith is, is going to be there throughout their journey if they get married, if they have babies, if they, it's, it's a blessing they look for. So if they are struggling, then they're going to look for guidance from someone that they feel that is there for them all the time. But if the judgment and the understanding and the education is not there from the people within places of faith, then we're losing more people to to poor mental health because of the lack of support they've given and the lack of education there. So if I was to pinpoint on anything throughout throughout this podcast I would say is try and have the conversations if you're somebody of faith or spirituality is have those conversations within your community and encourage more workshops more conversations talks professionals coming in on a regular basis and what you would find is actually professionals who work in mental health and suicide prevention are more than welcome to come in and do a talk and raise the awareness because I think you would probably agree, Arthi, is our drive is to prevent and support, help and encourage conversations where someone doesn't feel alone. And they would do those by all means. There's so many organisations, so many charities. There are so many professionals who work in the health industry who are willing to do those talks and those workshops it's how can you ensure that they happen on a regular basis yeah I totally agree with everything that you said there and I think as you were highlighting um you know your point one of the 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 term that came to mind quite a bit was permission and I think that's often what people need is, is you know a safe space is a safe space because you allow somebody the permission to talk about something with no judgment and you're absolutely right that we don't know what somebody's going to say once they start their conversation we don't know what has led to them to think about suicide and it's okay if you don't have all the answers because that person ultimately doesn't need you to I think as a, as humans we have a desire innate within us to want to fix things for other individuals and some of us are a, a bit more that personality type than others and it is hard to kind of almost take that step back and think this is your space, this is your time, and we're going to do what's right for you. And I can't, I, you know, I'm not going to ultimately fix anything. But I think the message is ultimately that you're not alone. And I think when somebody's struggling in a place where they've been in so much pain, and, and some of that absolutely can be a build-up, some of it can be from a traumatic life event, um, whatever it is that's happened, that person's in a lot of pain. And the only thing that they think will end that pain is thinking about suicide or thinking about ending their life in that moment. So I think it's about creating that safe space where somebody can share what they need to share and say it and say it openly without that judgment, but also recognize that they're not alone because you know when something is in your mind and it's racing and it's racing and it's going around, it's really hard to understand it. It's really hard to pick it apart and work with it because it's just in your head. And sometimes you need a bit of help. Like, you know, we think about work. We often don't do a lot of our work tasks on our own. We often have somebody that we talk to, but that's our manager that tells us that this is what we want you to do. And you like, and you have that two-way conversation. You say, okay, is this what you want it to look like? Can you give me some feedback on this? You know, all that sort of stuff. You know, for most things in our life, we actually don't do them on our own. So why are we then in our mental health situations or, you know, going through really traumatic things and not able to talk to somebody about what's actually happened? And I would say that 
it's important that if, if somebody, you know, listening to this podcast is worried about someone currently, you know, listening to this and thinking, you know, I've come to this podcast because I'm worried about this particular individual and I think they could be thinking about suicide, but I don't really know where to go. Or somebody's listening and thinking, I want a little bit more information. I would say to, to do research. And, and when, I say, when I say research, I mean, just read up about this particular topic before you decide, especially if you've had no formal training or if you've had no level of awareness beforehand, because it's always better to go into a conversation feeling a little bit more equipped. There's plenty of suicide prevention charities. So obviously we have big national ones like Let's Samaritans, and then we've got like Papyrus Prevention of Suicide. We've also got mental health organizations such as Mind that will you know, have chapters, um, so pages on their um, websites all about suicide prevention. We can get some support, but it ought to ultimately tell you what you can do and it'll talk about the language. And you can, you can still call those helplines as well just to get some advice. And if you can get to a training, if you can get to a training session, please get to a training session and, and you know, have that face-to-face -face conversation with you know, a trained individual about how to have that conversation. I think a lot of people enter these conversations with good intentions, but they don't always understand maybe how harmful some of the things are that they can say or how it can just defeat the object of why you want to start that conversation. Especially when we think about people's attitudes, people thinking it's selfish, people saying, what about your family and friends and things like that. So if, you know, if, if anybody's listening to this and they are worried, go to those places. And if somebody's listening to this and they have tried to seek support, and this is another thing as well, because some, some people may have actually gone to people in their lives to talk about this, but have been shut down or have been made to feel that they've not been validated in their, in their thoughts. Go somewhere else. Know that that isn't going to be your only experience of talking to someone about suicide. There will be somebody out there, and whether that is just an anonymized helpline to begin with, but there will be someone out there that will be validated and listen to you. Because sometimes we do go to people, and maybe they're not ready to hear what we have to say to them. And that's going to be hard for us to take a step back and think, well, where do I go from here? And for a lot of people, it makes them shut down. And what I want you to do, if you're listening to this and you are that person, please don't shut down. Please talk to someone about what you're going through. There's a lot of people that go on to have suicidal thoughts, but it's what we do with those thoughts that counts. It's how we talk to and, it, and it's how we behave within that. And it's how we seek help and support that's really, really important within this. So I think that's going to be my strongest message that I want to share with individuals, you know, either somebody who's worried or somebody themselves who's thinking about that. And just know that you're not alone and you, you, you will be okay. But you have to seek that help and support in order to understand how to get better and how to feel better. Thank you so much, Adi. There's, there's so many things that I know I'm personally going to take away from this podcast and the things I could potentially implement into those who have come forward to myself or just even the organisation and what we can do to make the conversation a lighter conversation and so something that someone doesn't have to fear. So thank you so much. Where could someone go to, as in what recommended helplines would you think are best out there? There are, there are a number of different helplines and I think it depends. You know, there are some faith-based helplines that obviously individuals can go to. Now, I don't know the ins and outs of some of these uh, smaller faith-based organisations, but for example, if it is a suicide prevention or, or somebody thinking about uh, thinking about suicide or worried about someone thinking about suicide within this, I would say to go directly to those suicide prevention organisations and charities because they're going to have... The, you know the most amount of knowledge within this area of course we know that there are other issues that can impact that you know we can think about external factors you know job debts things like that family member family breakdowns but we can also think about mental health as well so there's like you know mind health lines and things so that people are kind of aware but i would say like the samaritans is obviously one that's a great listening helpline you've got an organization called papyrus prevention of young suicide 
And that's actually for anyone under the age of 35 who's thinking about suicide. So that's their direct helpline that they can support, but also for anyone worried. So, you know, you can get like, you know, employers, you know, um, educational professionals, family members and friends that also call the helpline as well to get some advice. I've mentioned MIND as well. MIND is a great one. And MIND is available nationally. You know, you've got your local MIND and then you've got the big national MIND. So you've got them as well that you can that you can talk to as well. But you've got other, you've got helplines for different things. So if somebody's been bereaved, um, you know, that's something we didn't get too much get too much time to go into today. But if somebody's been bereaved by suicide, you are significantly at risk of taking your own life or having those thoughts of, of suicide. So, you know, if you're worried about someone who's been bereaved and they're not coping very well, you there's bereavement helplines that you can call. So you can still call those suicide prevention helplines, but you can call Cruise, for example, and, you know, Cruise Bereavement Care, and they, they can provide that. There are helplines that deal with, like, debt advice and things like that and understand that there's mental health issues. So there's a number of different areas, but what we can do is we can definitely share some of the um, very specific suicide prevention ones and mental health ones, and then people can go from there. But I would say to get that advice, even if you just do a Google search about what's, you know, available in your local area to begin with, just have those conversations. And just remember, just think about the advice that, you, that you've got and whether it sits well with you. And if not, maybe call a different helpline and maybe just compare what the advice is that you've been given and what feels right for you to take those next steps. And one thing I'm just going to add on on what you've just said, Adi, is if you are calling a helpline or a charity is prepare yourself with a pen and paper and take some notes down with what they are saying. And, you know, take that time to reflect on your conversation with with the charity or with the individual. And yes, do do call around to several charities and, and connect with the ones that you feel connected to. And finally, that you are not alone. Uh, there is someone out there who is willing to help you, talk to you, guide you and be there for you. And if you are struggling at any point, then do get in touch either with Seek Forgiveness or you can get in touch with as the charity and helplines we have already mentioned. Thank you again, Ardi. It's been an incredible podcast and I really appreciate you taking out the time to do this today. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it.